0: Listen to The Amendment Now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, fam, it's me, Amara. Welcome to The Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, it's the first day of Pride Month, a month that is associated both with celebration and protest, but it's also a time where we can reflect on who we are, how far we've come, and where we want to go. But if you're looking for a way to celebrate outside of the parades and parties that I just mentioned, I would highly recommend picking up a copy of a new must-read memoir, Horse Barbie. Horse Barbie is a triumphant and powerful story of survival, love, and joy written by my friend, the history-making model, Gina Rosero. I'm so excited to be joined by Gina today to talk about the book and her incredible journey from pageants in the Philippines to the elite modeling world of New York City and beyond. Now, since Horse Barbie contains plenty of trans joy, we're just going to jump right into my conversation with Gina to feel it all. I'm so thrilled to be joined by model, public speaker, and now author, Gina Rossero. Born and raised in the Philippines, Gina has been modeling since she was discovered at 21 years old. She's been making history in the industry, including as the first trans woman to be named as Playboy Playmate of the Year in 2020. Since first coming out in her iconic 2014 TED Talk, Gina has given speeches everywhere from the White House to the United Nations. She made her directorial debut with Caretaker, a docu-series about Filipinos in care work, which received four Emmy nominations. Gina is also the founder of Gender Proud, a media production company that tells stories about trans and gender nonconforming communities across the world. I'm especially excited to talk with you, Gina, about your memoir, Horse Barbie, which hit bookshelves on May 30th. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Truly appreciate for having me.
1: Thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I can't wait for the movie. (laughs) Because at nearly 300 pages, you take us on an incredible global journey through so many different aspects of space and time and your life And where we are and where we're possibly going. So (laughs) I can't wait until... Has it been optioned yet? I mean, let's just start with the real, real. Has it been, you know, somebody already calling you?
0: Uh, Let's just say we're in conversation. I think that's the extent that I could... (laughs) Yes, we're in conversation. I'm happy to have, you know, an incredible team that, that really sees, you know, what this book is about. You know, as you said, when I decided to write Horse Barbie... And looking back in my life, I know that I've lived a cinematic life. So (laughs) Mm.
1: You have done. I can already see some of the scenes, including one driving through Italy. But people will have to uh, read it to capture all of those scenes with Lorenzo. (laughs) First of all, let's just start with the name. Horse Barbie, of course, is provocative. But it also encapsulates the reality of kind of two parts of your identity. Because as you say in the book... It both came out of a slur and at the same time is incredibly empowering because it does actually capture the spirit that you always bring to your work. Can you tell us about those two words, horse Barbie, and how you came to have that moniker?
0: Yes. Uh, who, horse Barbie. I like that you say it's a spirit because I really feel like it's a spirit. You know, I grew up in the Philippines and we have this very vibrant culture of trans beauty pageants. And little did I know, at 15 years old, I met a trans woman named Tiger Lily, and she was also a famous beauty queen maker. She saw me and she said that I should join trans beauty pageant. So I joined, and from 15 to 17, I became the most prominent trans beauty queen in the Philippines, let's just say a pageant diva, right? And I remember when, on my very first pageant at 15, I reached the top of the pinnacle of the trans pageant world at such a young age, so quick. So I became the most prominent, the diva, and you could imagine a competitive industry you know, has a certain feeling. So the competitors, the, the veterans, the, the fans started calling me that I look like a horse because of my dark skin, my protruding mouth, and my long neck. And they started calling me that. And I remember walking by them backstage, everything, you know, the fans would denigrate me with that name and it hurt to hear that. But then in my mind, I felt like this This is, what do I do with this? And I think one night my trans mom, Tiger Lily, saw me on stage and she saw the way I paused, the elegance and the aura that I was emanating on stage. And she said, you know what? You look like a horse Barbie. That's the beginning of me being called Horse Barbie. It was a name given to me by my trans mom. And I felt it's that spirit, the goddess of Horse Barbie that I always carried with me from Philippines all the way to moving to America.
1: I'm so glad that we started with the Philippine pageant worlds because I think it's a gateway into so many important things about your story. And the Philippines is a character in your story. I could vividly describe the alleyway and the house that you grew up in, the foods that you ate because of the power of your writing. But the Philippines is a character both as a place of pressure and economic pressure and poverty and political pressure but also at the same time of liberation with respect to the way that the culture historically has made space for trans and gender nonconforming people and of course gay people and the way in which the pageant world for you was a platform to access to a wider world in the Philippines so I'm wondering if you can talk about the way in which you reflect on this duality of the philippines as both the place of extreme pressure for you but also possibility
0: i have a very complicated relationship um, with my motherland for sure but certainly when i was writing this book you know i've lived half of my life in the philippines half of my life here in america so i i always will have that perspective of being born and raised in the philippines and growing up there you know as i mentioned in the book like in these conversations that we're having and even when I shared to people and when they read the book, they said, Oh, you mean trans beauty pageants in the Philippines happen during Catholic celebrations and the American perspective sense, the Western sense would say, Oh, you mean it's accepted because it's visible. And I'd like to offer a more nuanced, you know, sort of response to that because in the Philippines uh, we have had a long history of gender fluidity in our culture In our language, we don't even have he or she in our language. It's a gender-neutral language. So trans and gender non-conforming people play a very crucial role in society in pre-colonial Philippines. They're the spiritual leaders, the advisors to the kings and queens. You know, it's upheld in, in our culture. But then 1521 happened, Ferdinand Magellan got to the Philippines, thus the beginning of 333 years of Spanish colonization. So you could just imagine when they got to the Philippines and they saw that the spiritual leaders are gender nonconforming people. I mean, they're called the Babailan, Lakapati, Asog. There's so many different names and language how we, des- how we describe gender nonconformity conformity and gender-fluid people in the Philippines. You can just imagine what they did, right? And then for 333 years, we followed the Catholic calendar, meaning we celebrate so many Catholic patrons, saints. And uh, during those celebrations all over the Philippines, it's part of our culture. And then in 1898, we were purchased by America for twenty million dollars from Spain. So we were an American colony for 50 years. So you have that forces and influence, right? It does the confluence and the amalgamation of vibrant trans pageant culture that happens during usually when we have a fiesta celebration, for example, celebrating, I don't know, fiesta of St. Peter, right? In downtown Manhattan. On the fifth day of that celebration that usually falls on a Sunday, the main event for the whole family to watch, it's the trans beauty pageant. And that usually that stage is set right in front. The set of the pageant and the stage is usually right in front of the big churches in the Philippines. So when I say that, and people would say that it's accepted or because it's part of the culture the other side of that is trans people in the philippines are culturally visible but we are not politically recognized mm. to this day there are no rights for trans people to change name and gender marker on legal documents there are no comprehensive anti-discrimination protections still so to this day a lot of uh, the trans community and the people that i work with and and my trans family in the philippines we still do diy when it comes to hormones or finding affirming mm-hmm. care you know there is a country with 105 million population yes some things has changed but there's still i mean there's only a handful of medical establishments that supports under, endocrinologists that would provide care for trans people mm. so we have that
1: there's so many dualities in your book and and living in contradictions that's one of them another contradiction almost a character in this book is the ongoing sort of tension between the United States and the Philippines. As you describe, on the one hand, being a place that was a colonizer, that did fight a very brutal war in the Philippines, a very costly one in terms of the local population there. But at the same time is the place where so many Filipinos, including your mother, came to have a better life in the United States. Mm -hmm. And also for you, that same contradiction of coming to the United States exactly as you described, where you could legally be recognized as trans, change your gender marker. So many of the things that you did when you arrived here at the invitation of your mom, but at the same time losing the cultural place that you had in the Philippines as a trans person, which was missing here. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that, also that contradiction that exists between the U.S. and the Philippines and how it manifested for you as a person.
0: Yeah. So I described in the book when I was 17, I was traveling on the back of a bus with my pageant family, you know, doing one lane mountain road switchbacks you know and then around 3 a.m I got a call from my mom and she said your green card petition came through you could now move here and at that moment I was 17 years old I was again the pageant diva I actually said no to my mom I didn't want to move to the US because you know I was young I was I had everything was making money why would they leave the Philippines you know and then a few weeks later she came back and she called me again and she said but you know if you move here you could change your name and gender marker on your legal documents, a policy that's still to this day not possible in the Philippines. So from the moment she said that, I was like, forget everything. I'm moving to America. So in 2001, I got to San Francisco at 17. You could just imagine the culture shock of a place. Yes, seeing my F on my gender marker was the affirmation and the freedom and the validation that I needed and that I wanted at that time. But then the first question I asked my mom, where are the trans media pageants? The way that we have it in the Philippines, it's like, there's no such thing. So that that made me sad as a 17-year-old trans, you know, Filipina. But then the very first trans representation that I saw on national television is on that show Jerry Springer. And I saw how trans people were treated, or obviously it was a circus in the way gender is treated, that was the beginning of shame for me. Like this is how trans people are treated here. I could be legally recognized, but I'm not culturally accepted. So that presented that contradiction. And I I have to say it 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 affected the way how I view myself. How, you know, it kind of dimmed the light that that I had this vibrant trans Filipina beauty queen too. Well, I can't do that, you know? So I started working in, you know, Macy's and cosmetics. You know, I thought it was a pageant adjacent world. And I met my community of trans Filipinas working there. And I went to school. I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And, you know, I was living that life. And, you know, in reality, because I have forgotten that big dream that I had because of seeing how trans people are treated in America.
1: hmm I mean, one of the things that you described really vividly is not only the Jerry Springer episode, but kind of the brushes that you and the community that you had found in San Francisco had with violence, either on trips or people that you knew or that your community knew were murdered. And that as a survival tool in the United States, one of the practices that you adopted was on being stealth. And one of the quotes that you had that really stood out for me, which embodies kind of this contradiction that we're talking about, was you said, quote, I left the Philippines where everyone knew I was trans, only to find myself in the literal closet in America.
0: Yeah. You know, for so long, I, I believe, you know, what America promised of freedom and acceptance and the dream of, you know, what this country promised. And and the myth, right, of, of that story. And then I certainly took it on its head and say, well, it's more complicated than that. I was out and proud in Asia. But here in America, I literally had to go back to the closet and hiding in the closet because there was a possible violence waiting for me right outside that bedroom. So that did a lot to myself. But then, you know, after many, many years in San Francisco, I knew in, in my heart I wanted to pursue a career in, in the arts, in, in fashion, there was a woman named Tula, Carolyn Kosi. She was introduced to me by my trans mother, Tiger Lily. And she's, I mean, she is an icon in the community. Her story is like a myth, right? So I remember being shown her newspaper clippings, even in the Philippines. So Tula being a fashion model became my sense of possibility at such a young age. And little did I know, you know, a lot of my career trajectory became that trajectory. And talking about contradiction as well, like Tula became the sense of possibility for me, but also a sense of caution that you could achieve the dream, potentially, you could dream about being in fashion, but you better be careful to not share everything about who you are, to hide all the aspects of what makes you a trans person. Because the moment you get outed, your career would vanish because that's what every trans woman, trans fashion model, when they got out of their career disappeared. But I had a dream. So in 2005, I I wanted to pursue that. And that's why I moved to New York city in 2005 to pursue a career that I really, truly wanted, knowing that these are the contradictions that I have.
1: So you come to, New York, right? It's so interesting that for so many people outside of the United States, I don't think people in the United States realize this, the way in which television and our media overall shapes the way that people see our country. Mm -hmm. It's not only the portrayal, it's the definition of America, what we show on television. And so for you, I was really... um, amused and delighted when you spoke about the way in which New York being in certain sitcoms, like Friends and other things, had shaped your view of New York. But you land in New York and then embark on a modeling career which relatively quickly becomes really successful. And you are in that kind of heyday of sort of pre-financial crash New York modeling world where there's this really rush of an intersection between the financial world, entertainment, and models, and just kind of stars overall. You were right in that mix. And I'm wondering for you what that was like. There's so few people that were kind of in that mix. I mean, you know, you were, for instance, on page six and literally in the heart of that go-go world of that time.
0: Yes, I mean, New York City, Chelsea area right now, 27th Street, that used to be Club Row. That whole area is clubs, after hours clubs, and everything. Mm -hmm. I was 21, just turned 21, moved to New York City, a young, single, vibrant fashion model, trans woman, obviously, you know, stealth. I was having so much fun, you know, I was living the life, right? And doing the thing, working as a fashion model. But when I'm also by myself, I was also in deep sadness and longing to be who I am, to hopefully one day I could share fully who I am with the people I'm around. So even that is a contradiction because y- it cannot be more sort of a reflection of I was outside in billboards or magazines a success story. But deep inside, I was struggling. I was in an industry that is all about. The power of imagery, advertising, marketing, but I was not being seen. I was both so visible, hyper visible as front and center of magazines and advertising, but I was also consciously invisible at the same time. These are these dualities, the contradictions that I had to carry every day of my life. So, you know, obviously now writing this book is also my way to understand what really happened how did i do that cuz maybe parts of me as an immigrant filipina and knowing what my family my mom's side of the family had to go through to move to america you know it's the stories of immigrants where we just have to make it work figure it out survive i did all that but writing this book in in a way it's true everything they said this is a healing journey for me to unpack a lot of that. Mm. Both the painful parts, but also the, the fun parts, because there were some fun parts, because I could also disappear. I could also reinvented myself in many aspects of my life. I described in the book, and people that have read the book were surprised how I referenced as being a spy, because I felt like I was a spy in an eight-year clandestine operation, because I had to protect my cover all the time.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that is a part of that is you being in that world, right? And I mean, I think for people who are not familiar with it or who didn't have contact with it, it really was kind of like the world that was described in Sex in the City in that time, but on steroids, right? Like that whole thing of big marrying Natasha, who was a model, that kind of really was kind of the culture. And there's so many times where you had encounters with really prominent men in New York, because as you said, you would model. Models got access to the best, most exclusive clubs um, in New York at that time. And that's then where all of the Wall Street and the business people hung out. And one of the reasons why clubs would allow models in and give you all prominence is because they knew that it would bring those guys in. And so therefore, there is this culture that developed between the models and kind of the money people in New York at that time. And you described a lot of encounters where you dated or flirted with or even went on trips with extremely powerful and prominent men in the business community And at the same time, when you were doing that, were exhilarated and then also deeply fearful and having to try to actively manage the information about you and who you were. I mean, I look
0: back, it's all the things that you described, that's how it was. And not just like managing my story, but, you know, this other side of desire, you know, it was Mm -hmm. the first time I was 21 years old, feeling so desired wanted and feeling good about that and enjoying that while at the same time there's a, also these other parts that i have to protect that was the bulk of you know the first three four years in new york city obviously right before the financial crash and, and the cultural aspect has to play into this you know like anybody that i meet who's like a filipino mm-hmm. who's from the philippines who might possibly know the culture or worse might know me from my pageant diva life in the philippines I had to manage those realities. I had to edit everything. I became my own fashion editor. The story that I share comprises of how will it fit in this context? If it's a finance person that I'm dating in the moment, how do I be that ideal date of that finance person, right? I mean, and, and have fun in that moment. And then that's it. Because I, even that, I couldn't pursue a relationship. I couldn't pursue, you know, deeper relationship. I was having fun, you know, playing around, but that's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are all these scenes in the book where you'll be in one of these moments that we're talking about, you know, you'll be in Bungalow Eight or you'll be in another one of these clubs. Kane, yeah. uh, or Kane, yep, or bed, right? You'll be in one of those major clubs at the time. And then suddenly someone will say, oh, there's this other person from the Philippines that suddenly brought into at your table or that you bump into. And that person, you know, somehow is from that world. Either they're a finance person or sometimes they were kind of other models or really prominent people. And just the fear and the shock that you would have of trying to not betray what you were feeling on the inside at the same time as you say is still playing this role of essentially a cis straight model
0: yes and it, the, that's a cultural aspect that, that comes into play because you know Philippines is very exposed to trans people and American context very much definitely not so so even that that the economy of that that cultural differences um both Place in my advantage or disadvantage, depending on who is that person that's speaking to me. These are the things I had to balance. And, and, and also in some way, Kane was my favorite club because when after working in fashion, doing photo shoots, going to castings, which brings with it a, a different layer of trying to be stealth, to hide. I want to bring tampons in my bag in case like I'm in a cattle call of castings that lasts for like a couple of hours and I'm in the bathroom with another model, if they ask a, you know, a tampon, I could give them a tampon because I'm a cis model.
1: Wow. You know, the
0: things that you have to do to, even like speaking right now, um, speaking in a certain voice, I used to be so worried about those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word that we describe it now is gender dysphoria. For me, it was just like, I'm a spy. How do I protect this cover and, and be the, the story that I'm sharing to everybody? Girl, I remember this. I would be in a photo shoot and the look is big hair, right? Hmm. Put on big curlers in my hair. And then right before the stylist will put like the final touches, the stylist would want me to put my hair up, brush it, and flip my head back all the way. You know what I used to do? I used to flip on the side and not flip it all the way. And the hairstylist would get so mad at me. It's like, I told you to flip your hair all the way up to get the volume. I wasn't flipping my hair all the way back because my neck would, could potentially expose my Adam's apple.
1: Mm. In this world that we're describing, you are booking major cosmetics campaigns like Rimmel. You're booking Macy's. You're booking MAC. As I already mentioned, you are interacting with stars and talent. You know, Supposedly, Dave Chappelle flirted with you in a Page Six article. You describe how that didn't happen, but that... You were still associated with. Let that.
0: me let me also clarify yeah. that definitely did not happen.
1: No, yeah, <laughs> so, no. I, no yeah. I was just saying it did not happen. It did not happen. <laughs> There's this world that you're swimming in, right? Yeah. And at the same time, you speak about how just adding kind of a finer point to what we're discussing, you're always ready for that phone call. You always thought that every time your agent reached out to you, that they were going to say something like, "Guess what?" Is it really true that you were, you know, a sign male at birth, quote, born a boy, close quote, because um, that's in page six, or, you know, waiting for someone to, quote, expose you at every single time?
0: Yeah. You know, looking back in that journey, when I was, when I decided to write this book, I said to myself, let me tackle the most difficult moments. And the thing that you just shared is, is at the heart of that, because in as much as I'm you know, being propelled to, okay, the next career, the next cosmetics job, the next commercial, the next cover-up magazines, within that, it's that threat of being outed in any moment because that's what happened to every single trans models. And usually, the saddest part of that is usually because of someone that they know, someone that we know. We know stories of Tracy Africa Norman. We know stories of Carolyn Tula. You know, it's people that they know that, that, that whispered mm. to someone about who they are and their careers vanished. So I knew that's a possibility. So in, in a sense, the bigger the modeling job that I want to achieve, because that's a pinnacle of success, the bigger the paranoia that comes with that. Wow. And in that moment when that commercial came out, a moment that should have been a celebration, I was at home shaking, paranoid waiting for that phone call.
1: I mean, what I think is really fascinating about this is that, you know, there can sometimes be what I personally believe is a fruitless argument in our community about the degree to which we fit in the gender binary and how that can lead us to safety. I personally don't believe that that's the case. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the things that's really important, one of the things your book says is, y'all, I'm here to tell you I lived that life. You know, I got to as great a success for as long a period as is almost as possible as a person who was not revealing that they were trans. And I'm here to tell you that there is no such thing as totally living stealth, Mm -hmm. that it's an impossibility, and that it's an impossibility not only because of, you know, someone eventually knowing, but also because of the toll that it takes on you personally and psychologically. That seems to be a key thing that you're saying or that it's easy to come across from your book.
0: It is very much so. I think, you know, writing this book, my decision is I'm just going to share the story that happened to me. And as what you were saying, I completely agree with that because (sighs) the other side of that is still, you think that you just want to reach that whatever definition of being stealth and quote, unquote, passable, we're still upholding. This whole notion of you know the gender binary, we're still mm-hmm. upholding the ideals that, that you and I know and the work that we do is BS. And I am um, here to tell you know the listeners and everybody in the world that I suffered because of that. You know, at the end, we think that we're going to upheld that and on the other side there's this beauty and power and all that. there's that component, but deep inside, spiritually, <laughs> for eight years. You know, I'm having that conversation with myself. I'm suffering internally because of that. And even, you know, right now, as I, as I look back and then like some of the through line in my store, horse Barbie is the spirit that I have to carry with me. Because I, somehow in this moment doing fashion, modeling life in New York City, I was craving for that horse Barbie on that stage in the Philippines, that unapologetic 15, 17 year old who done all that because she is fully herself it's almost like horse barbie is the spirit of truth and goddess and sort of my true north there are definitely moments that I remember in my journey where I could almost feel that horse barbies right next to my shoulder or a crown that I could wear as a spirit or right next to me or behind me that would just guide me to just push through you know as difficult as it is, you have to push through
1: one of my favorite lines from the entire book kind of encapsulates everything that we're talking about. And he said, quote, I felt iconic and dysphoric all at once.
0: It's absolutely true. I mean, in many, many sense, because so many people would want to have this dream. And yes, it was a dream. It was possible. But with that comes with the threat of, of losing everything because of this iconic dream that I was able to achieve. You know, it's it's a double-edged sword, you know, physically, spiritually, mentally.
1: Eventually that world popped. It ended. Um, it would have been really fascinating to see, I think, what would have happened if it had continued and if you had continued in it. But almost the contradiction that you were living ended because of the end of the financial crisis. You then quickly and boldly and brashly reinvent yourself into a corporate girl corporate woman, working (laughs) girl. It's like you live all these like different, um, you know, iconic New York various uh, films and television shows. Like, so you're a little bit sex in the city, Natasha, and then you were, you know, working girl, um, Melanie Griffith and that. You've had all these different kind of New York iconic film and television moments. Um, And, you know, people should read how that transformation happened. But eventually, once that that ended, you began to go back to embracing your trans self. And one key moment is when you were in Tulum and you saw turtles hatch. You had found love during this time as well, after everything unraveled. It's kind of a grounding phase for you. And then you were in Tulum and you saw sea turtles. And that did something in you of breaking forward this desire to really embrace and tell the world who you are. Can you just tell us about that?
0: Yes. I by the way, I have that tattoo in my arms right now, the mm. sea turtle. Oh wow. Um yeah, it's a, a absolute reminder of how magical of a coincidence that is. I share this, you know, I haven't fully talked about this, but this is really a magical moment in my life. <laughs> Sometimes we oh, come on Gina, that didn't happen like Obviously, my partner is there to witness it. I've documented it. In that moment and in that part of my life, I was about to turn 30 years old and something had happened physically, emotionally. I got super, super sick. And I told myself that, you know, this conversation that I'm having is like, I don't want to enter my 30s still carrying this burden because uh, months and months leading up to my 30th birthday, I was oof, the pressure just reached its boiling point of, do I come out? When do I come out? What if I come out? What's going to happen, right? Like that intensity of a paranoia and, and worry and anxiety really reached its, like it's a, it was about to explode. It just almost went crazy just managing all that. So my partner and I were in Tulu, Mexico for my birthday, and we were dancing, you know, There's a live salsa on the beach. We're dancing on the beach, having, enjoying an amazing margarita. And then my partner asked me, it's like, um, so gee, what does, you know, turning 30, what does it mean for you? You're about to turn 30. And in that moment, as he said that, somehow all these things I've been thinking about just felt so right to say it for the first time, you know, vocally say it out loud. I told him, it's like, you know what, Love. I'm ready to come out and tell my story. And as I say that, the live band Salsa stopped the music. I was like, what the hell is going on? Somebody got in an accident. Someone getting married. Like, it's completely stopped the music. The singer said something in Spanish on the microphone. And next thing we knew, hundreds of sea turtles were being born under our feet. It's, it cannot be more cosmic than that. At the moment, I didn't know. You know, I was just like, oh my God, cute sea turtles. It's also into New Mexico, the Mayan culture. This is, um, you know, is revered in, in, in the, that belief of rebirth in the culture. So everybody that's dancing on, on the beach started carrying the, the turtles, you know, guiding them to the ocean. Because apparently, normally when sea turtles are born, they respond to the waves, the vibration of the waves of the water. But because there was people dancing salsa, instead of going to the waves, straight to the waves, to the ocean, they were coming towards us. And then so we started like, you know, helping the, the sea turtles, take them to the ocean. And once it was done, I was about to wash my hand in the ocean. It just hit me and just started bawling you know, realizing what had just happened. It was right on cue, as I say, and in so many ways too, my life has so much coincidence, but this is one that was the most pivotal in my life because as I continued bawling, realizing what had happened, literally the next day, it was as if it was dark and light. It was before and after. It was this belief, that self-belief that took over me, whether it's horse Barbie spirit is back at me, but like that kind of confidence was in me again, that belief that I could do this, I have it. And right at that moment, I said, you know, I'm going to share my story. And if I'm going to share this, I want it to be in the biggest platform that I could think of. And It was also still considered a risk. So if I'm going to risk this career, I'm going to do it, go big or go home. And I started writing emails to friends and, oh my God, I have the email that specifically said, hey, friends, on the first quarter of 2014, these are the things I want to do. I want to speak at TED conference. I want to speak with the State Department and United Nations. I'm sharing my story for the first time.
1: You tell the Ted story, and then that led to so many other opportunities to tell your story, eventually becoming a filmmaker and now an author. So much of your career, though, as you started and came to New York was actually about selling an image, right? You were selling an image as a beauty pageant multi-time champion and winner. Same thing as a model. I mean, there are even certain names or ideas that you talk about manifesting and being what other people wanted you to be through the lens. And now your job isn't to do that. And I'm wondering what is sitting right in your spirit as you look back. There was a part of you that was about selling an image and being what other people wanted you to be on some level. And now your job that you have embraced is increasingly being you, who you are. And I'm wondering how that is feeling for you.
0: Wow. That's a great question for me right now. I am an artist first and foremost. I'm a storyteller first. So with this book and with directing, writing, producing, I just want to utilize storytelling Mass media in all of its forms to tell stories from the perspective of a trans Filipina, from the perspective of an immigrant, from the perspective of someone who had lived multiple worlds and multiple cultural straddles between at the UN level to like uh, someone who grew up in in the little alley in the Philippines. You know, there is so much there. I think the thing that fuels me is how do I bring all of that through the lens of. So many things or stories that we have not heard, or characters that I want to bring on screen on TV or in in all forms to tell these stories because whether it's directly personal to me, but rooted in that personal lived experience, that's my sense of purpose now. Uh, Whether it's, you know, people consider that advocacy or not, that's not my decision to make. But certainly, I want to fully share fully realize characters and stories and perspectives that we haven't heard. You and I know works. It, we both work in media. And as much as we sell an image and the image of what is being put out there in the world, it really is all about how that media is created, who's creating that image. You know, Because for so long, our stories, both for me as a trans person, as an AAPI person, as an immigrant it's not told from my lens. So, you know, that's what I'm about, is tell more stories.
1: And lastly, you are at the intersections of so many pivotal fights in America right now. You're a trans, you're an immigrant, you are a member of the AAPI community. And for those who might be listening who are are not any of those experiences, or maybe part of them, What do you think is an important thing to know about living at that intersection in the United States? And I'm specifically mindful of the fact that, you know, this is going to be a summer of contention around migration in particular and people who come here for all sorts of reasons, often to a place that is not welcoming to them, but at the same time has a part of its DNA the welcoming of immigrants.
0: As someone born and raised in the Philippines, a culture, country that's been colonized multiple times over from Spain to America and what that it did to my country, to my culture, to my language, to my spirit, to my ethos. What I aim for is to, to talk about the, the experiences of people behind those statistics. It's always centering lived experiences of people that are being attacked, that are feeling marginalized. Because through centering that, through unpacking the lived experiences, it defies this other side that wants to paint us as non human or dehumanize our experiences. That's what I'm, what I'm about. But more so, in my journey, in, in this journey of writing this book and the life that I've shared from the saga, this global saga of from Philippines to here and wherever I'm going, is that I've lived. Fully. And I think, you know, because of my experiences, I'm not saying particularly to trans youth or AAPI youth that it's going to be easy. We know it's not going to be easy. But what I want to share is find those places, those communities, those passions, those deeper meanings where you could be your full self. You have to pursue that. And in that pursuit, Hopefully, you'll find that the goal is to live fully and there will be ups and downs. There will be pain, hurt, rejection, all of that. But living fully is what propels me. And hopefully, with this book, what they get out of it is to live fully as well.
1: Well, Gina, thank you so much for your story and for coming on and talking about it. I think it is an engaging and powerful read. And it was a pleasure to read it and to be able to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you, Amara, for having me.
1: That was model and media maker, Gina Rosero. Thank you for joining me on the TransLash podcast. Now, listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. Special thanks to Arzook 427 for giving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcast. Yay! Arzook says, "This podcast is amazing. Amara is so damn smart and fun. We'll need a now e-rating on this episode for that." She takes the pretentiousness out of political rhetoric while remaining true to the trans and queer communities. Do yourself a favor and listen. Well, of course, I can't agree more. Arzik427, thank you so much for your kind words. And if you, listener, want to help support the show, go ahead and leave your own five-star review on Apple Podcast. You might just hear it on the show, and you'll help us fight the trolls. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Sandra Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. What am I looking forward to in the next couple of weeks? Well, it's going to be a whirlwind Pride Month for me, as it is so many in our community. It's an intense time where we're both celebrating and it's overwhelming and we're being attacked. So there's a lot going on. But I'm looking forward to being honored by the Stonewall Community Foundation in a couple of weeks. I respect their work so much because they help to fund small LGBTQ organizations to help them get up and on their feet, and that's vital work. And so awards like that are particularly meaningful for me. In addition, you know, it's strange because whenever you get an award or whenever I get an award, I'm always surprised because that's not what's in mind while you're doing the work and you don't really know if people are paying attention or really valuing what you're doing. Um, Even though people do say it, you're just in the work every day. So when people do say, Hey, we like what you're doing. um, It means a lot. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yay. Stonewall community foundation. And y'all can support them, go to their website and you can give small amounts of money if you want to this month to help them continue to fund small organizations that need support to get on their feet to do the vital work person by person in our community.